as our title indicates, uh, our goals this morning are to discuss the writers of Montana history, from its earliest players and chroniclers to early academics who delve deeper into the accepted narrative, to those who move beyond memoirs and biographies to the leading men, biographies of leading men, to more inclusive narratives. <laughs> I will be discussing the earliest publishers of, uh, and writers of Montana history from about the 1860s uh, to the 1940s. Rich will take up the Golden Age, which we think of as the 50s to the 90s, and Jeff will uh, back clean up. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. But before I begin, uh, we do have a few caveats on this. First, these musings are works in progress. We, are sincere, we sincerely hope the audience members will consider our comments as a departure point for discussing Montana's past and future historical writings. Second, we in no way claim to have covered all the excellent writings or writers. Any exclusions are not meant to offend, but rather in the interest of time, we've selected representative writings. And third, we hope to produce a larger work from this discussion and so encourage uh, audience participation and feedback. In other words, with that photo, we're, we're fishing a bit, so <laughs> bear with us. Um, I'd like to start my portion with a few quotes uh, about historians. We can call these the dreamer, the cynic, and the critic. The first, for historians ought to be precise, truthful, and unprejudiced. Neither interest nor fear, hatred nor affection should cause them to swerve from the path. History, the rival of time, the depository of great actions, the witness of what is past, the example and instruction of the present, the monitor of the future. Cervantes, which of course we can't achieve, but we keep trying. The second, to give an accurate description of what has never occurred is not merely the proper occupation of the historian, but the privilege of any man of parts and culture. Uh, you know, meaning, of course, that history is often written by the privileged, so take it with a grain of salt. And some historians hold that history is just one damn thing after another, which is one of my favorites, um, which is really kind of a critique of historians that, or, or folks who look at history and don't see the patterns and the complexities of history. As these quotes indicate, historians are a self-reflective lot constantly questioning their ability to accurately capture the past, to maintain objectivity, and to reveal truth, all while being interesting. Although this hand-wringing may seem excessive, it plays an important role in the growth and refinement of the historian's craft. Modern examples, of course, include the widening diversity of study ushered in by the new Western historians, who refocus Western history to encompass race, gender, the environment, and the plethora of cross-disciplinary studies that we see today. Our session stems from this kind of questioning. Over the next hour, we hope to review the work of Montana's many fine past historians and raise questions about where current and future Montana historians might take us, and by extension, explore the continuing relevance of the study of Montana history. Many of the earliest historical writers in Montana have the distinction of living through and chronicling the territorial period. It is one of this state's unique qualities that the effort to document history in this region started essentially with territorial designation. There are many resources that we can discuss to cover this time period. Uh, one of the first that comes to mind, of course, is the contributions to the Historical Society, uh, which started publishing in 1876. This is a comp excuse me, compilation of historical essays, speeches, 
um, organizational records for the Historical Society and transcripts of really interesting historic documents, such as steamboat arrivals, um, government reports, journals, diaries, statistical information, much of which really isn't available anywhere else. And that's going to be a theme in this. Oh, you got the web. Okay. Another type of historical resource that we can discuss have been rather dismissively dubbed the mug books. Because they were often subscription-based, they were formulaic, you found these in uh, states all over the country. They're basically reference books because they're huge. You look at these and, and many of them are 900 pages plus per volume and they're multi-volume sets. Um, they're expensive and they're very reliant on self-promoting autobiographical essays. So it's, there's a lot of uh, attaboys in these pieces. In their seminal work, Montana, A History of Two Centuries, Mike Malone and Rich Rader damn these resources with faint praise, saying subscription or mug histories are sometimes useful. So examples of these mug books are Mike Leeson's History of Montana, Joaquin Miller's Illustrated History of Montana, Progressive Men of Montana, um, Montana and Its Story by Tom Stout, and Robert Raymer's piece. And these range from this early period all the way up to the 1930s. Um, another set of writings at this time are autobiographical memoirs, um, which also have a lot of really unique information in them, but they're often very romanticized, they're very inflated and biased. Um, of course, the, the king of these, I think, um, hopefully everyone will agree, is Granville Stewart. Um, Montana as it is, uh, 40 years on the frontier, if you've read any of those, it, I mean, the man walks on water, I think, <laughs> according to himself. Um, and Nathaniel Lankford's uh, Vigilante Ways and Days and Ways is another example of these. To get a more detailed idea of these early historians, however, I wanted to focus in on um, closer on a, a couple of folks. First, Helen Fitzgerald Sanders and Martha Edgerton Plasman. I have chosen these women because they are representative of their time period and contain a lot of great, unique information. And like their contemporaries, they warrant another look, I think, by historians, not because they're unbiased or by current standards inclusive, but rather they're a resource for understanding 19th century historians, their biases, the nature of their audiences, and the impact of their work on the ongoing narrative of Montana history. Helen Fitzgerald was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1883. Her memoir, The Dreammaker, paints an idyllic picture of her early childhood in post-Civil War South. Quote, truth and dream is bound up in the memory of Mammy, Seek. As my own childhood has passed, so has her and her kind. So has the South with its beauty and romance faded into the house of dreams. She continues, this is where my father and his brave compatriots laid down the arms of a lost cause. It is splendid to fight and win in a just cause, but it takes greater courage and a nobler spirit to risk all and lose and then acknowledge that one was wrong. This is what my father did." End quote. Sanders chronicles her family's move to California, attending art school, writing under a masculine nom de plume in order to get published at all, and her eventual marriage to Lewis Peck Sanders, the son of Wilbur Fisk Sanders in 1900. Following Lewis's service in the Philippines, the couple moved to Montana and remained there until 1910 when they divorced and Helen left uh, first for New York City and then Washington. As a writer, Helen published an impressive variety of articles and books. Her fiction works include um, The White Quiver, 
which is a pagan Indian, uh, it's about pagan Indians living in an Eden-like Montana prior to white settlement. And Little Mother America, which is a, an essay, or is a book about an immigrant girl's experience in Ellis Island. She also has um, numerous essays, just far too many to, to relate here, but one of the best titles in all of her stuff is Redeeming the Ugliest Town on Earth, or How Craftsman-Style Homes, Homes Can Save the Soul of Butte. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> her foray into historical writings is impressive, if um, nothing more than the, the size. Um, as I mentioned, some of these histories are huge. Her A History of Montana is about 2,700 pages in length. Um, it's a three-volume series that begins with an overarching history of Montana from 1860 to 1910. It's interspersed with quotes and full passages from pioneer writings, journals, and diaries. And the second and third volumes are these laudatory biographical essays that I talked about. Based on my earlier comments about what historians hope to accomplish, Ms. Sanders seems to meet much of the criteria. The history of Montana draws on and draws together a lot of great information, and a lot of it from original sources. There's tables of population, ethnicity, average worth of farm properties in 1910, um, short county histories, there's writings on Montana and the Philippines, there's appendices, or in the appendices, there's listings of legislators, elected officials from territory to date, soldier listings by troop, rank, home, um, as well as deaths, promotions, and discharges. So there's a lot of great information there, as well as these personal accounts that I was talking about. And we've seen Ms. Sanders has a dramatic, if engaging, style. Again, picking on 19th century Butte. She seems to have a penchant for that. Quote, swimming in a palpitating sea of smoke, which filled the bowl, the bowl of the valley with opal waves, lay the likeness of the inferno. There tall chimneys capped with points of flame, long lurid crawling streams of molten slag burned the heavy darkness into the crimson glow, and occasionally a bright red flare of light would come, all completing a scene of picturesque horror. She's not going to be on the tourism board for Butte, I don't think. <laughs> this is a great example of what a professor in college used to call pluperfect purple prose. <laughs> Sanders also is seeking truth in her work. She states that her goal is to write a faithful and unbiased history of Montana. Quote, I have earnestly tried to give an unprejudiced account of the tremendous crises which divided our citizens into bitter factions and plunged the state into temporary confusion and turmoil. However, her biases are literally front and center. She dedicates the piece to her father-in-law, quote, to Wilbur Fisk Sanders, pioneer, vigilante, and statesman, to whose dauntless courage and unimpeccable integrity Montana owes an everlasting debt of gratitude. And many would argue a more polarizing character of Montana's early history couldn't be, would be difficult to find. She also limits her essays, of course, to the, the common phrase that we get bandied about with history as dead white guys um, and familiar stories but everyone at this time is doing that. She also romanticizes her subjects. Writing about E.S. Paxson and the subjects of his art, she says, quote, he reached the Western country in time to witness and participate in the bitter Indian fights. Thus, he of the opposing whites who fought courageously in the winning of the wilderness has become, in a sense, a disciple of the passing race. And when the fleeing figure of the red man, Sikh, has gone forever from the shifting scene of light, 
it will still live upon the canvas of its faithful interpreter, and the name of the Indian and the master will forever be linked together in the history of the mighty West. So with both the strengths and weaknesses that I've just discussed in mind, let's go on to our next uh, historian and writer. I love this photo. <laughs> she just looks... She was a pistol, so this is really interesting. She looks very demure compared to her personality. Um, Martha Edgerton Ralph Plossman shares many qualities with Helen Sanders, not the least of which is a branch on the family tree. Martha is, of course, the daughter of Sidney Edgerton and niece of uh, Wilbur Fisk Sanders. Uh, she came to Bannock in her, in, with her family in 1863, returned to the States in 1865 to further her education, and in 76 returned to Montana as the new bride of Herbert Percy Rolfe, a fellow teacher and activist. Like Helen, Martha's essays follow the accepted narratives of Montana, i.e. Lewis and Clark, fur traders, mountain men, mining booms, road agents, vigilantes, steamboats, and the like. She also uses her writings to express her and her family's passionate support of the party of Lincoln, and often expands her topics to include the experiences of workers, women, and children. Unlike Helen, her early arrival in Montana allows her to share first-person recollections about both her experiences and that of many other early non-native settlers. Like Helen, Martha's writing is also engaging, as with this excerpt describing her memory of life on the trail coming to Montana. Quote, I see the yellow road under the glaring sunlight, stretching ahead to the horizon, unconsciously aware of the noble oxen straining at their yokes. I hear the long whips crack and the strident voices of the drivers and feel the jolts of the covered wagon as it rolls slowly along. The work is young and so am I. Whatever responsibilities or worries afflict my elders, none touches me. Every day is new and unallied with the past, for this is the wilderness, a place of strange sights and marvelous experiences. Romanticized, yes, but effective. Martha's writing is journalistic, conversational, witty, and opinionated, thus appealing to her primary audience, the daily readers of the Great Falls Tribune from the 1920s to the 1930s. She builds on and personalizes the stories of territorial Montana that her contemporaries can identify with. Martha also states that she aspires to overcome biases and report truthfully on Montana's early history but the reality is a bit removed from the desired. This is best shown when she attacks the biases of other writers, and in so doing reveals a bit about her own. Quote, on a recent visit to Butte Public Library, I found in its Montana department the illustrated history of Montana by Leeson. Who Leeson was, I do not know. But the history contains some valuable information if it is divested of the manifest political opinions of its author. She takes Leeson to task for falsely depicting Marr and his reception in Montana as divisive. Marr divisive? No. Telling in personal terms her recollections of Marr and using them as a basis to both undercut Leeson and establish herself as a more reliable interpreter of the events. She also takes issue with Leeson's comments about vigilantes as being law-abiding when the law is suited. Martha caustically dismisses the comments with, well, the whole story is without foundation. In an essay entitled, History As It Was Written, she takes a swipe at a host of past historians. Quote, it has been affirmed by some writer that all history is two-thirds fact and one-third fiction. Of Montana history, I would reverse that statement. Our earliest histories were the work of Southern men, who were quite largely governed, as was natural, by sectional feeling that made it impossible to treat justly of persons and events. 
Later historical writers simply took their words without trying to verify it. She then brings in her own spin, which leans heavily upon both her family's Republican ideals and her own burgeoning socialism. Quote, we now know that no section of the country was alone responsible for slavery, but then no one understood the economic cause that made it a Southern institution. Slavery in any form and in any country tends to degrade labor. Where it prevails, labor is performed by an enslaved class. Naturally, Southern men felt superior to Northern men who either worked or did not feel demeaned by doing so." End quote. Despite their weaknesses, the work of Helen Sanders and Martha Stewart Plasman, like many of their uh, contemporaries, should not simply be dismissed as work that is biased, exclusive Old West mythology, but rather as resources that, despite limitations, present information that cannot be found elsewhere, and that, frankly, have shaped the narrative of Montana history for generations. Let's move now to some of the standard bearers for Montana history in the academic setting. Paul C. Phillips was born in Bloomfield, Indiana in 1883, graduated with a master's degree in history from Indiana University, and in 1911 received a PhD at the University of Illinois. In the same year, he became a professor of history at the U of M in Missoula. He served as history and political science chair and later as executive vice president of the university a position that he resigned in 1937 after a protracted uh, conflict with university administration. During his time away from the university, roughly 1938 to 1945, Phillips was employed by several federal agencies, including the Federal Writers Project. He was reinstated uh, to the university in 1944, returned to teaching in 46. Over the course of his career, Paul Phillips wrote extensive biographies and edited the journals and writings of important figures in Montana. What differentiates this work from those discussed earlier is the impressive contextual information and analysis that he provides. Works such as the Journal of John Work, 40 Years on the Frontier, which of course is by Granville Stewart, but he edited and really brought context to it. The Journals and Letters of Major John Owen. All of these still stand in, as important works in Montana history. He's also known for densely researched historical monographs, such as the fur trade and medicine in the making of Montana. Phillips's great strength as a historian was stated to be his analytic approach to research and writing and his ability to inspire the same in his students. Senator Mike Mansfield wrote in Historical Essays on Montana, Dr. Phillips was not content with merely digging up useless facts or rehashing the past. History inspired him to teach and develop insight and understanding of man's past and its relation to the present and future. Youthful scholars under his direction learned to read critically, interpret data carefully, and to understand the relationship of today with yesterday and tomorrow. J.W. Smur and uh, K. Ross Toole also state, quote, once his brain was directed to a piece of historical work, all was swept away and nothing remained but pure reason. His ability to reduce a seemingly unworkable mass of data to orderly form is forever surprising. Phillips then can be seen as kind of a scientific historian whose research and writing were precise and based on exhaustive research. Phillips then moves Montana history writing from biographies and essays of Helen and Martha, however charming those are, into more analytical works of academic historians. My final subject this morning can be seen as a bridge from the older generation of Montana historians into what many still consider the golden age of Montana history, Merrill Burlingame. Known as Mr. Montana History, he was born in Boone, Iowa on March 13, 1901. 
He attended the University of Minnesota and the University of Wisconsin before receiving his doctorate at the University of Iowa. He joined the faculty of Montana State College, now MSU, in 1929 and became chair of the history department in 1935. He served as a full-time professor until 1969. Burlingame's impressive list of publications include many that are still considered seminal works in the study of Montana and the Frontier West, including The Montana Frontier, A History of Montana that he wrote with K. Ross Toole, John M. Bozeman, Trailmaker, and many, many articles. Not only a writer and academic, but also a, a tireless promoter of history, Montana history in particular, he helped establish the Museum of the Rockies and reinvigorated the Montana Historical Society as a board of trustee member and founder of our magazine. Through these institutions and his teaching, Burlingame tirelessly promoted Montana history from various platforms and to various audiences. Likewise, his approach to writing Montana history was expansive exploring topics well beyond the well-worn path of past historians and pulling the discourse into the mid-20th century. From a history of Montana, quote, during the quarter of a century since the publication of the last larger history of Montana, an encouraging number of interpretive and specialized studies have appeared. These have been used extensively in this writing. And he goes on, while the necessity to cut and call is a painful one, it encourages an emphasis upon what is new and untreated elsewhere. It sharpens the critical faculties. Thus, in this history, the reader may find favorite and important subjects, like the early gold camps and the vigilante movement and political party feuds, have been shortened to make way for the considerations of the 20th century developments, which have never been treated before." End quote. In a memorial to Burlingame, Pierce Mullen, MSU uh, historian and colleague, notes, quote, his historical career centered upon what is arguably the hardest history to do, local and state research. His work encompassed subject matter well known to his contemporaries in attempting to dispel the, dispel the folklore and mythology associated with many romantic interpretations of his material, Merrill crossed swords with immediate descendants of his principles." Unquote. Professor Mullen also points out that critics of Burlingame labeled his work as glorified local gossip that fails to consider larger cultural issues of race, religion, or differences. This criticism can be leveled to any of the historians that I've discussed so far this morning. However, in his efforts to question the assumptions of local history and its resources, memoirs, documents, writings, Burlingame moves Montana history away from the bias of his predecessors and closer to the more inclusive histories and historians of the next generation. Phillips and Burlingame dominate Montana history for several decades, 1920s basically to the 1950s, and can be seen as the best of an earlier generation shaking hands with the next generation, which is where Rich will continue the story. <laughs>